0: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Church calls this feast Theophany, which means the appearance of God, because it's on this day, it's in this event of the baptism of Christ, that God is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When thou, O Lord, was baptized in the Jordan, know that for that, pardon, the voice of the Father bear witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son, and the Spirit, in the form of a dove, confirm the truthfulness of his word. It's a manifestation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Eastern Church, this feast is earlier than Christmas. Uh, We have St. John Chrysostom mainly to thank that he brought Christmas to the East. And I don't know who the West is supposed to thank for bringing theophany to the West, but they did. The Church prefers, for this feast, Matthew's version of the Gospel, which is the only one that's truly theophanic. In Mark Mark especially, it's not, a, not the least bit theophanic. The father speaks to the son and says, Thou art my beloved son, and, and only the son sees the dove. There's no, there's no theophany there at all in Mark. In, uh, it's pretty close to that in Luke, although in Luke everybody sees the dove. In John the Baptist, apparently only John the Baptist sees the dove. But Matthew's Gospel... It's completely theophanic. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and everybody hears this voice. In Matthew's Gospel likewise, there's a clear parallelism between the beginning of Jesus' ministry with the manifestation of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in baptism and then the closing commission, the final commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where the church is told to go forth and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's entirely appropriate that Matthew's Gospel is the one that's used for, for this feast. There are merits to the other two stories as well. One can't possibly cover everything contained in this feast. I'm gonna limit myself probably to just one consideration. When the father speaks of Jesus as his beloved son, declaring himself well pleased, these expressions were not entirely, if the word be allowed, original. Indeed, they evoked in the mind of Jesus and anyone else who heard them two biblical texts with which Jesus himself was already familiar from the years of study in the synagogue. These two passages likewise pertain to the more ample message Jesus heard that day. I can't really, I'm not sure there's another scene in the Gospels that has received so much attention that's raw nonsense than the baptism of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us because it's obviously a scene which is capable of being seen from a number of angles. That's why we could never use, for example, we could never use Luke's version of, the, of that baptismal scene as theophany. We couldn't, it's, it's, it's a very different thing in Luke. But all three of the passages have this expression, okay? Egapitos, my son, in whom I am well pleased. These words evoke, as I say, two texts. The first text conveyed the electrifying word spoken by the Lord to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The memory of this dramatic story evoked by the voice from heaven beckoned Jesus to assume in his own life the sacrificial role of Isaac. God was not going to ask Abraham to do anything that he wasn't prepared to do. Take your son, your only son, whom you love and sacrifice him as a whole burnt offering. Thus, in the beginning of his ministry, our Lord is already summoned to consider the tragic events that will end it. Prior to proclaiming a single word of the gospel, Jesus receives his first intimation of the cross. The reference to Isaac and his father in the baptismal scene is even more apparent if we consider the Septuagint or Greek text of Genesis 22-2, where the Hebrew word for only, Yahid, only, is in the Greek changed to the word Agapitos, Beloved so that the Greek actually reads, take your beloved son whom you love. Now the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism likewise evoked a second biblical text which was familiar to Jesus. It came from the prophecy of Isaiah and introduced the appearance of the Lord's servant. Indeed, this passage stands at the beginning of the servant song. This is how the servant songs begin. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My soul delights in my chosen one. I have put my spirit upon him. Now, although I have quoted this prophecy, as it appears in the Transmitted Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. (coughs) Early Christians were familiar with another version of it, a translation closer to the words Jesus himself heard at his baptism. This is the way it reads in Targumic literature. Matthew quotes the passage thus, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved Agapitos, in whom my soul is well-pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. That's the way the text is cited in the 12th chapter of Matthew. Thus, even as the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and the Father refers to him as son, the vocabulary of the scene recalls Isaac, and the suffering servant. It's in these figures, these images, that Jesus will largely understand in due course his redemptive role. The the Isaac motif especially runs through the Gospel of John. That's that's a big motif in Jesus' argument with the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. Abraham rejoices in my day, you know, and so forth. The suffering servant is to be found in all the gospel scenes. The father's son, the true Isaac, is here identified as God's servant. More and more as the events of his life unfold, especially the conspiracy of his enemies, Jesus will sound the depths of that identification. In straight lines, both of these images point to and converge at the cross. That's why the feast of the baptism of the Lord coming so early in the year already begins to hint at the Paschal mystery, which we celebrate each spring, the mystery of the Lord's death and resurrection. In the experience of his baptism, Jesus received an earnest intimation what that baptism finally symbolized. Jesus certainly understood this. The gospel narrative will return to this motif in that later scene where Jesus foretells the strife and divisions attendant on the proclamation of the gospel. Where in the gospel of Luke, chapter 12, he tells the disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Or in chapter 10 of Mark, in chapter 20 of Matthew, when James and John want the right and left hands in his kingdom, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The feast of the baptism of the Lord is not only a manifestation to the church of the mystery of the Holy Trinity, it's the first intimation of Jesus or the mystery of the cross.